series that we started three weeks or two weeks ago uh, in the Gospel of John and the prologue of John. And we've been looking at the Christ behind the Christmas story, looking how Christ is revealed to us in this passage, not just from His birth, but from eternity. So far we've seen that Jesus is the Word who creates. He's the eternal Word who has existed for all eternity with the Father. And we've seen also that He is the light who saves, who shines into the darkness to bring us out of the darkness into the light as children of God. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus as the Son who reveals from verses 14 to 18. So let's look at that passage. If you have your Bibles, please look there with me. This is God's Word. Hear it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Only so far in the reading of God's Word may reform our lives to its truth. I'm sure you would agree with me. We count it a joy, don't we, to know people who are important. We count it a joy to know people who are preeminent, people who are esteemed and revered, people who are in high positions. After all, no, after all we know the old adage, uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's important, wouldn't you say, to know important People. Don't we long to know such people? Don't we long to relate to them and network with them and be known by them? Uh, perhaps it's a successful businessman from whom you want to know trades of the, uh, secrets of the trade. Perhaps it's a celebrity, an actor, a singer whom you admire. Uh, perhaps it's even a teacher, an academic, a, a great thinker that stirs your heart. Perhaps it's just someone you admire. Someone who you long to emulate. You see their life, you see their family, and you long to be like them. Perhaps it's just simply someone you love. Someone you love to be around. Someone you love to cherish. A a spouse, a child, a friend. See, I'm sure for every single one of us, there is someone that we long to know. Someone that we would count it a joy to know and spend time with. And get to know more and more. Now, now what am I getting at? What I'm getting at, is, what I'm getting at is this. The greatest joy in life is to know God. The most important thing and the most important person, rather, to know is God. I realize there's no greater joy than knowing God because every single one of us has been made by God to know God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're told that mankind is made in God's image and likeness. 
And if you read Genesis 5, you see that those terms are, are terms that relate to a father-child relationship. Just as Adam birthed children in his image and likeness, God created us in his image and likeness to know him. And you see that in the garden where God creates man, God speaks to man. He doesn't speak to the animals. He speaks to man. He, he relates to man. He enters into relationship with him. And man is known by God. See, God has created us to know him. He's created you, whoever you are this morning, to know him and realize God delights in it when you know him. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, we're told this, For I desire steadfast love, and this thing's not on. There you go. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, God cares more for your knowledge of Him than all your religious rituals. You see that even in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. That's what matters. Or Jeremiah 31, verse 34, the promise of the new covenant, where God promises to redeem a people. And what is entailed in that promise? He says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Do you see, do you get the point? God delights in being known because he's made you to know him. And therefore, the greatest joy, the, the greatest privilege in life, the greatest honor that you can have is to know God. I consider what J.I. Packer said. He said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we aim for in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives to know God. What is the best thing in life? The thing of greatest joy and comfort and peace. To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? The knowledge of himself. Dear friend, dear beloved Christian, do you agree with that? Amen. Would you agree that the greatest thing is to know God? Is that your greatest desire this morning? Is God the most important person you want to know? Is the knowledge of God the greatest pursuit in your life? And I ask that question because let's be honest, often it isn't. Let's be honest, often our greatest joy and our greatest pursuits aren't focused upon God, but it's focused on ourselves. Our joys, our pleasures, our delights. Just look at how this world celebrates Christmas. It's all about me, me, me. In fact, aren't we told that in John chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that the Word of God that was eternally with God and who was God, when He came into this world, the world did not know Him. 
Not because of some ignorance in them. No, because they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They love their darkness instead of light. And that's where we find ourselves naturally, don't we? You know what God says to Israel in Isaiah 1 verse 2 to 3 applies actually to every people and every nation on the earth. He says there, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's curb. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Is that perhaps some of us this morning? God has made us. God has created us in His image, yet we don't know Him. See, base and ignorant animals like an ox and an ass know their owner. Yet God's children, the people whom God has made in His image, do not know. They do not understand. And God is saying here, His people are more foolish than a mindless ox and a dumb donkey if they do not know God. And that is us in our sin. Whenever we sin, whenever we choose this world and our ways over God, that's what we're behaving like. We're choosing the things of God over the knowledge. We're choosing the things of this over the knowledge of God. We need to therefore realize, as Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out, our supreme need, our only need, is to know God. Again, to quote Jaya Packer, he's written a great book on the subject, Knowing God. In that book, he uses this helpful illustration to explain how important this is. He speaks of an Amazonian tribesman. And he points out that it would be cruel to take that tribesman out of the heart of the Amazon and place him without any explanation into the middle of London. That tribesman would know nothing of Western culture. He would know nothing of English and the Engl- English or the, of England. He, he would be lost. He would be frightened. He would be directionless. For that tribesman, the world would become lonely and dark. And Packer's point is this, that's us. That's us if we do not know God. If we do not know the God who has made us in His image, the God who runs and rules this world. Packer says this, the world becomes a strange, mad, and painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Do you see how important it is to know God? This is our supreme need, and this is our greatest joy, to know God. And here we come to the good news of Christmas. Here we come to the Christ behind Christmas, because Jesus has come to make God known. 
In fact, in all the images that we see in this chapter, uh, all of them point toward this direction. Jesus, we've seen, is the word who creates in verse 1 to 3. Just as words reveal something of the speaker, so Jesus reveals who God is. We've also seen that Jesus is the light who saves, verse 4 to 13. Just as light illuminates and shows the way, so Jesus is the true light that illuminates the heart of man to see God. But, but see, the greatest image of all isn't just the fact that Jesus is the Word or the light. No, the greatest image of all is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That he's the Son of God who makes the Father known. Uh, consider quickly uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or consider Hebrews 1, 2-3. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Do you want to know God? Do you want to see God? Not just know things about him, but enjoy him? You need to know the Son. You turn to the one who is the exact imprint of his nature. See, in our passage, John concludes this prologue by highlighting that for us that Jesus is the Son from the Father, and as the Son, he makes the Father known perfectly. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Christ behind Christmas, we would do well to consider not just the child who was born, but the Son who was given to make known the Father. I, I want you to see three things from this passage this morning. The glory, the grace, and the gift of the Son. Firstly, the glory of the Son. Uh, look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now here we're told that the Word that eternally was with God at one point became flesh. The, the word that was with God and who was God became man. Here we see the mysterious yet glorious truth of the incarnation, which is at the heart of our faith, namely that the word of God became enfleshed. That the word of God added to his divine nature our human nature. That the word of God who was with God for eternity came to be with man. And he came as a man clothed not in the garments of heavenly glory, but he came clothed in our flesh and blood, in earthly humanity. Uh, Thomas Goodwin said in Jesus, the incarnate son, heaven and earth meet and kiss each other. But look how, how, how John teases this out in verse 14. And the word became flesh, and he says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now John could have just said that he lived among us and we saw him, but that's not what John actually wants to communicate. The Greek word there, as many of you would know, that word for dwelt means to pitch a tent, to, to tabernacle. 
the idea here is that this eternal word has come to tabernacle among man. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, then you know that that's quite significant. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was where God was present with His people. It's where the Shekinah glory of God was made visible. And what John is saying here is that the divine presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God is present and visible in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Moses and Israel beheld the glory of God in the tabernacle, now we get to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, but realize this glory is far greater than anything Moses and Israel ever witnessed. Why? Because this is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is the glory of the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. One who in eternity past has been at the Father's side in intimate knowledge and relationship. One who is the radiance of His glory. And so therefore, His glory is far greater than anything seen by Moses. Whereas Moses was a good servant of God, Jesus is the glorious Son of God. Now, what's the point I'm trying to get at? Why must we consider this truth of the incarnation? Why does the glory of the Son matter? Well, it matters because it should inspire awe in us. It should lead us to marvel and praise our God. Think about this for a second. When we, what we come to celebrate today is the fact that the Word became flesh, that the living God became a man. That the unseeable became visible. That the untouchable became touchable. That, that the unlimited became limited. That the God who dwells in unapproachable light now in Christ is approachable. Eternity has entered into time. The Son of God became a Son of Man. Why? To draw near to you and me. To come to man, to his creatures, to identify with us in our humanness, in our fallenness, in our suffering, to save us, to, to comfort us in our trials and our difficulties, and above all, to make known the Father, to make known the God for whom we were made. Realize because of our creatureliness, because of our sinfulness, we cannot look at God and live. We cannot enter into His presence and live. Think of it this way. If, if we can't even look at the sun and not be blinded, how can we look at God who dwells in unapproachable light? How can we know Him? Only if He comes to us in a way that we can grasp Him, in a way that we can behold Him. So you see, the wonder of the gospel and the, cellar and the wonder of Christmas is the fact that the Son of God brings God near. The God who is frightfully above us has personally come to us. I said earlier 
that we counted all joy to know people who are preeminent and esteemed. Well, who is more preeminent? Who is more esteemed than the Son of God? Who is more worthy of your time, of your worship, of your desires, of your affections than the Son of glory? See, as we celebrate Christmas, don't forget the Christ of Christmas. Don't forget to behold and marvel at the one who came near to us in our fallenness. To stand in awe at the glorious Son from the Father. Now, before we move on, we need to ask a question. When, when John says that we beheld his glory, what does he intend? Does he speak of a physical glory? Uh, when the word became flesh and lived among the people, did they see him walk on clouds with a halo on his head? Is that what John is referring to? I would argue no, and, uh, and I think John has something else in mind. See, the question really is, besides the Son being God and man, what glory is beheld when we see the Son? And so that question leads me to the second thing I want you to see, and that is the grace of the Son. Look again at verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, and here's the key, full of grace and truth. Uh, look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace, grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the glory that the Son reveals, the glory of the Father that the Son makes known is grace. He shows us that our God is a God of grace. And not just grace, a God of truth. Now, now to fully understand what John is saying, you actually have to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, and so just bear with me quickly. In Exodus 33, we find this very interesting account. Uh, in Exodus 33, 18, we have the account where, they, where, where Moses goes to God and he asks this question, an important question. He goes to God and says, God, please show me your glory. And God responds in verse 21 or 19 to 20, and notice what God says. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. See, the glory that, that God shows Moses is not some physical glowing glory, some halo. No, the glory that is revealed to Moses is the fact that God is good and gracious. But there's more to the narrative. After telling Moses that he cannot see his face and live, God promises to proclaim his name to Moses and to let his glory pass by him. And so at the beginning of Exodus 34, God tells Moses to, to cut two tablets of stone and to hide in the face of the rock. And listen to what happens in Exodus 34, verse 5 and 6. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God of 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, God reveals him his glory, but again, his glory is his goodness, and now that goodness is described with two words, steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you know how else you can translate those two words? Grace and truth. Do you see what John is saying? In John chapter 1, John is clearly reflecting upon Exodus, and he's saying that the glory that was only described to Moses, the glory that Moses couldn't see, that glory is seen in Jesus. The goodness of God, the grace of God is now evident in the Son of God. Now the question is, where do we see this glory? Where do we see this grace of Jesus, grace and truth? Well, think of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus ministered to those around him, he was marked by compassion. He was marked by steadfast love and grace. He healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he freed those in bondage from darkness, he he cared for the neglected, He, he sought out the lost, he, he drew near to sinners, like you and me, and he, he saved sinners, he forgave sinners. See, if you look at Jesus' ministry and you see how he relates to people, you see abounding, steadfast love. You see overflowing grace. But secondly, think of Jesus' life. In his life, Jesus was marked by faithfulness, uprightness, holiness, He was one who lived in the truth. Unlike us, he never sinned. Unlike us, he he walked faithfully before God. Unlike us, he, he kept the law in righteousness, not falsely, but sincerely, truthfully. See, if you look at Jesus' life, you see someone characterized by faithfulness and truth. Perhaps the greatest display of Christ's goodness and the grace of God in Christ and his grace and truth is at the cross of Calvary. At the cross of Calvary, both grace and truth kiss. Listen to how Stephen Stephen J. Cole explains. He says, grace and truth reach their culmination at the cross where the truth of God's holiness and justice was satisfied in the death of the perfect substitute so that he now can offer grace to guilty sinners who trust in Jesus. Or consider Ray Pritchard. Grace and truth go to the very heart of the gospel. Because he was full of grace, he died for you and me while we were yet sinners. And because he was full of truth, he was able to pay for our sins completely. Dear friends, beloved of God, The cross of Calvary is the greatest display of the glorious, gracious goodness of God because the Father gives His faithful and true Son in steadfast love and grace to save sinners like you and me. Realize, therefore, that at the cross we see who Jesus is and we see who our God is, a God who is good, 
and a God who is gracious. How so? Because when we plunge ourselves into sin and suffering, He sends His Son in to save us, to be our substitute, to pay for our sin. Beloved, behold the grace of God. The grace of the Son of God. And if that's who He is, if this is the God we serve, a God of grace, whose grace is made known in His Son, I would argue there's great comfort for me and you this morning. Verse 16 says this, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, The NET translates that this way, For we have all received from His fullness one gracious gift after another. And the idea is this, Jesus, because He is the glorious Son of the Father, His grace is therefore in constant supply. His grace is replaced with more grace. And that's replaced with more grace. There's a wealth of grace in the Son of God. Uh, One way to illustrate this, think of the ocean. Don't think of the people at the ocean now enjoying it without us. Think of the ocean. Think of how there's one tide after another, one wave after another reaching the shore. Well, dear friends, also think of the ocean of God's fullness. Think of His fullness where there is wave after wave after wave of grace. Grace that ever supplies the shores of our hearts, that supplies us with, with help and mercy and grace. I'm sure we've all been comforted by Lamentations 3, 22-23. And note, take note of the particular words used. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness, steadfast love. Dear friends, the never-ending love of God, His never-ending mercies, His faithfulness is available for you in Christ. In a far greater way than Jeremiah ever experienced, you get to know steadfast love and faithfulness personally in the Son, in the Son of God. See, if it's true that it's not what we know, but who we know, is there anyone better to know than Christ? One who abounds with grace. Are you in need this morning? Are you you burdened by your sin? Have you sinned grievously? Are you burdened by troubles and afflictions and heartache? Is your soul downcast and despairing? Do you long to grow? Do you long to overcome whatever trials hold you back and mature in the faith? If you're in need, then go to the one full of grace and just look to the Son who gives one gracious gift after another. Hebrews tells us to go to Christ Christ our high priest. He tells us to, to draw near with confidence where to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and help in the time of need. Dear friends, dear beloved, behold the grace of God in your need. Turn to the God who is gracious in His Son. So, so far we've looked at the glory of the Son and the grace of the Son. To conclude with, I want us to see in the third place the gift from the Son. 
In one sense, Jesus is the gift, right? Uh, we know uh, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life." See, so, so Jesus is that gift. But I want you to see that not only does the Father give us a gift, His Son, but the Son gives us a gift. Uh, look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. See, the gift that the Son gives is knowing the Father. When Jesus makes known the Father, He doesn't just reveal things about the Father. No, He actually opens up a way to the Father. Because of the cross, the Son reconciles us to know God once we were alienated, once we were dead sinners. Yet now we can know Him. That's where all of us were. We were alienated from God, hostile in mind, without God, without hope, enemies of God. Yet in the Son, you can know your God. In the Son of God, you can have intimacy and communion with Him. In Him, you can have a living relationship with Him. One that is marked by joy and comfort and peace. Blessings that this world cannot even begin to give you. See, the gift the Son gives is the gift of knowing the Father. Or said differently, the gift that the Son gives is eternal life. In fact, that's how Jesus defines eternal life. It is knowing God, not just life in heaven, but life in heaven with God and life that doesn't start then, but starts now. John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, eternal life isn't just life lived then, it is life lived now. Life lived with God in Christ. Life lived not only knowing things about God, theology, but experiencing God. Knowing Him intimately. A life lived in obedience to Him, in faithfulness, in joy, in peace, in wholeness. Look how John describes his intimacy, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Dear friend, are you in God? Do you have that intimate relationship with him? It's quite appropriate then that on a day like this, on a day marked by giving and receiving gifts, it's appropriate that we remember the greatest gift ever given, the gift of eternal life, gift of knowing God. Dear friends, have you received that gift? Do you know this God? Are you in a relationship with Him? Do you not just know things about Him, but do you know Him? Now, Stephen Charnock, a great Puritan, wrote a treatise on knowing God in Christ, and he mentions that there's one of three ways in which you can know God. You can know God by Adam, through Moses, or in Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know God by Adam. 
That is to say, you know God by nature. You were made in his image. You know that there's a God, but the Bible says you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the Bible is quite clear that unrighteousness meets with God's wrath. Is that you this morning? You know that there is a God. After all, why do you pursue all the delights? Your heart wants to be filled, but you don't turn to God for it. You need to know that you were made for much, much more than this world and its lights and its pleasures and its gifts. You were made for God, and until you find Him, you will not find satisfaction. Jav Packer in his book makes this observation. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches your imagination and lays hold of your allegiance. And he says, for what higher and more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? But perhaps you're here this morning and you know God through Moses. That is to say, you know God by keeping the law. You think that you'll be made right with God, that if you just keep the law, not be a bad person, not rape or kill or do any of those bad things, but just try to be a good moral person. That way you will know God. That way you can go to heaven. The Bible is also quite clear that no one is justified, no one is made right with God because no one is righteous. No, not one. Even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Is that you this morning? Do you go to God thinking you can know Him by your good deeds? Let me tell you, there will be two results from that. The first result will be a crippling despair because you will never live up. You'll never live up to God's law. You'll never live up to His expectations. You're just too fallen. Or you will come with foolish pride thinking that you've made it. Why? Not because you're comparing yourself to God, but you're comparing yourself to others. If you come to God trying to know him through Moses, you will be unsatisfied as well. The only way to know God is in Christ. That is to say to know God by grace because you are saved by grace. Not saved because of anything in you, anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. See, to know God in Christ is to know that in and of yourself there is no grace, there is no truth. You have not been faithful. You have not loved God as you ought to have. Yet in Jesus there is fullness of love and grace for you so that you can know God. So the way to know God in Jesus is to forsake what Dozer calls self-sins, self-righteousness, self-pity, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love. He even says self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. See, to know God, we need to deny ourselves and cling to Christ with faith. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In fact, that's the purpose of John's gospel. It was written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that you may believe that he's the son of God. And by believing, you may have eternal life in his name. 
See, faith is the means through which you receive the gift of eternal life. Faith is the eye that looks upon the glory of the Son as the God-man who comes near. Faith is the hand that takes hold of the grace of Son, His grace and truth for you at the cross. And faith is the mouth that feeds upon the gift of life in the Son when you are nourished and sustained and enlivened in Him. Dear friends, will you not believe in Him? Will you not trust Him? Will you not receive eternal life? Will you not come to know this God? The God you were made for? What's stopping you this morning from knowing Him? What's stopping you from knowing the most important person in life? See, if we count it a joy to know people who are of preeminent status, who are esteemed, then how much more so should we not count it a joy to know the gracious God in the glorious Son of God? Charnock said this, knowledge of God and Christ is the life and happiness of the soul. He says elsewhere, the knowledge of this God in this knowledge of this God, our insatiable mind is filled, our vast desires are satisfied, and our staggering soul is settled. Dear friends, will you not come to know this God this morning? I plead with you, look to the Son, come to know the God for whom you are made. Or let me close with this quote by Spurgeon who said this, the knowledge of God is the great hope of sinners. Oh, if you knew him better, you'd fly to him. If you understood how gracious he is, you would seek him. If you could have an idea of his holiness, you would loathe your self-righteousness. If you knew anything of his power, you would not venture to contend with him. And if you knew anything of his grace, you would not hesitate to yield yourself to him. Dear friends, I wish you a Merry Christmas that you would enjoy blessing, but blessing that comes by knowing this God and yielding yourself to this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are some of you this morning that do not know you. They've perhaps even heard some things about you this morning some things about your son, glorious mysteries, wonderful news of grace. We pray, dear Lord, that you through your spirit help them to not just know about these things, but know them personally. That all of us would come to Christ as our Lord and our Savior, that we would own Him, that we would give ourselves to Him because He has given Himself for us. May we revel and delight and find joy in this gift this gift of the Son and this gift of knowing you, Father, through Him. Work, we pray. We pray that as we leave this place, we would desire more of you. And dear Lord, that in that desire we would be satisfied in you. Work we pray, be exalted we ask in the glory, for the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.